You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. Joining me now is David Ritter, and this is going to be an extremely interesting interview because we're talking about the protection of ethnic minorities worldwide. And David Ritter himself is of immense interest to me because he is originally from Jamaica, who was then raised in the United States, made documentaries about ethnic minorities, including a Jewish minority in both Jamaica as well as Haiti, and then went across to Iraq to to document the story of the Christian protection forces that were trying to protect their way of life. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great experience so far being here in Johannesburg. How long have you been in South Africa for? Three days. Three, Three days? days so far. Well, welcome. Is this your first interview in South Africa? It's pretty much the first thing I did since leaving the hotel and running errands. So, Tell me more about the, the Jamaican Jewry. This, to me, is so fascinating that there is a Jewish group of people living in Jamaica. Right. Well, the Jewish heritage goes all the way back to the days of Columbus under the Spanish, when the Spanish colonized Jamaica first, before it became a British colony. You had a group of um, Jews that were fleeing the Inquisition period, and they found refuge in that area. They were under the radar in that area. So they formed amongst the Spanish communities their own little crypto-Jew communities at that point, I guess you could say. They're keeping under the radar. Uh, Eventually, when the British came and usurped the island from the Spanish, it became very easy, much easier for the Jewish community at that point. They didn't have to be crypto anymore. They could be more open about their faith and their culture. And uh, the Jewish community continued in, in Jamaica well into throughout the 18th century into the 19th century. In fact, it, right in the Kingston Parish, there's an area called Spanish Town. And Spanish Town was historically a Sephardic Jewish community where Portuguese and Spanish Jews uh, resided, had businesses. And into the up to the early 20th century, Spanish Town was like a primarily Jewish-Spanish area. Now, if you go to Spanish Town, I guarantee you, you probably find no one of any Spanish, Portuguese, or um, Jewish derivation. Possibly maybe one or two people might be there. But at this point, there is the remnants of that community around two to three hundred people, and there is one um, synagogue that's left in Kingston. So there are still Jews living in Jamaica from this original arrival all these hundreds of years ago? Yes, indeed. There is still a few hundred people, and they they still ha- are of that Sephardic lineage, lineage primarily. And they're still practicing. There's a few other people who have Jewish lineage, even some prominent individuals in the business world uh, that are of Jewish background and might not flaunt it so openly, but definitely uh, they have their connections and roots to it still. And in Haiti? In Haiti, it's, I believe, probably also a Sephardic background, but um, that probably started going back to when the Fre- it was a French colony prior to the, eight- the 19th century, prior to the 1800s. And that's the Jewish community remained. It always had, there's a number of people. Uh, I can say that it was probably at its height around the 1950s, but uh, at that point, probably maybe 500 some odd people. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you a rough estimation. But it got to the point where under the Duvalier regime, which was the president at that time, was a very difficult, tumultuous time period. At that point, that community dwindled. And I would say we're at the point now where it's probably approximately 30 people who remain, uh, they generally meet uh, at one of the, um, I would, the patriarch, I guess you could say, is an individual named Bijo, and they meet at his home every month or two, maybe. Wow. Absolutely incredible, absolutely fascinating. Would never have thought that there were communities 
of Jews going back so many hundreds of years on these islands. Let's talk about Iraq. What made you, of all people, land up in 2015-2016 in Iraq documenting the Christian Protection Forces? When ISIS began gaining power around 2011 to 2012, reports started eking in uh, about the violence that were being per- they were persecuting Christian communities, Yazidi communities, Kurdish communities. They were targeting specific ethnic and religious minorities, and they made it very clear this was for extermination. And as this went on, I began um, really becoming concerned. And one of the biggest things I noticed in Western media, there was a big blackout. There was minimal reporting going on from the mainstream media outlets. And I would start getting through grassroots media videos of people being tortured, murdered, mass numbers of Christians being shot in the head. These things enraged me. I think as a normal, I, I guess I'm just being a normal human being. I think someone who's uh, someone with a normal mental emotional constitution should be angered by violence against anyone, regardless of their ethnic creed or race. But, you know, I guess being of a Christian background, I would have naturally had an aversion. I would have had an aversion if these people were Muslim. I know, and I'm sure I would have, because I've seen this exact same violence happen to even Muslim groups. But this enraged me that there was such apathy amongst my peer group. I would try to talk to people about this, and either they were disgusted because I, I don't want to see a video of people being killed. I mean, that's not the point. Or, as the point is that there's a horrific genocide happening before us right now. Or, other people would just brush it off like, "Oh, I'm not interested." They, they were more interested in fighting over transgendered bathrooms. That there should be another bath. You should have three or four bathrooms implemented. Or, someone said something mean to someone, and therefore we should have a huge dialogue about it. Some ridiculous, asinine things I see coming through mainstream media. At least I'm talking the context of the United States. And uh, this really enraged me. So I got to the point where through personal experiences, I kept meeting, I was meeting Coptic Christians and Christians of all different backgrounds who had, had family in these situations. And it emotionally stirred me. And I came to the point where I wanted to volunteer my life and time to the Christian protection forces of that region. And I began spending time with not only Christians, like the Assyrian and the Armenian community, but Yazidi communities and people of all different backgrounds. And it was just very upsetting to see so many good, decent people going through such hell with minimal aid and help, at least at that time. And so I dedicated that, that couple of years of my life just to focusing on helping those communities off that way. And I eventually came across a, um Armenian community I was taken to with some friends. That's, that's where we focused our time was this village called Havresk. And it's an ethnically Armenian Iraqi community that at the time was about nine or so kilometers from ISIS-controlled territory. And with a small protection force of 22 men, they deflected every attack on their village from ISIS. And I was just amazed by the generosity, the love, the kindness of these people, but the will to fight, to protect their culture, their identity, their religion. And I found it inspirational. I think every nation in the world should be inspired by that kind of resolve and tenacity. We're talking to David Ritter about ethnic minorities. When we come back, I want to find out more about why David has chosen South Africa as his next port of call. You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. This Friday is Rosh Chodesh Adabet. It's the month of the holiday of Purim, of joy and of pranks. So Chai FM Management is sending Howard Feldman and Zinati Kuma back to school. Chai FM will be coming to your radio live from King David Lingsfield this Friday for Rosh Chodesh Adar. Join Howard Feldman and the Morning Mayhem team from 6am as they get schooled this Rosh Chodesh Adar. 
Always very fascinating these live reads And I learn something new every single time David Ritter, you have documented the plight of ethnic minorities You've spoken about forgotten people worldwide um, And you're now in South Africa Why are you in South Africa and does it have anything to do with your mission To, to tell the stories of forgotten people or ethnic minorities? Yeah, I guess I end up getting in this theme always And it's I have many interests and I've always wanted to break into something different, but it's just, it's the way it's been now for me. It's kind of been a mission of talking about ethnic communities and ethnic minorities and specific groups of people. Cause, and I think this is effective is to speak about people and groups and microcosms rather than it gets very difficult when we talk about an entire nation state of tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people, because at that point, there's this great huge dichotomy. So what I try to do is focus on things in a smaller context. And from that point, people can relate to that and correlate that to their own experience. Seeing things on a micro level can help us see things on a macro level. At least that's how I feel and that's benefited me at least through my study. But here in this situation, we have these reports coming out. Uh, in the U.S., you have two different... We were talking this earlier. There's two different perspectives. We have what we call the left wing and there's this right wing, which these are vague, ambiguous terms that don't necessarily mean anything specific, I'm sure, in this country or even in the context of the U.S., but... Within this thing we call the right-wing me- media, we have this idea that, that whites are being genocided out of South Africa. There's, a, there's some kind of concerted effort and mass violence focused at them. That's what comes from some media outlets, but generally not in mainstream media. That comes more from, uh, you know, m- websites like Breitbart, for instance, or a few other select groups. On the other end of the spectrum, in mainstream media or academia, there's the idea that there's virtually no harm unto whites or, or any ethnic minority in the case of South Africa, and things are very cohesive and fine for the most part, and that there's nothing to worry about. Now, in the middle, I find this other perspective from especially coming here from South Africa that there's simply a problem with violence and crime and it's less about race or ethnicity and it's more about something dealing with economics or politics or just a criminal element or behavior that's going on my job my want is to find the middle ground and get all the perspectives I can and see what's going on and what are the solutions to them I know that there are protection forces similar to like in the case of Iraq there are security groups some of them are ethnic focused some of them have no ethnic or racial slant at all. I would like to know, and I don't know if that's necessarily even the solution in this case. I would like to know what the solution is and how are people dealing with it, if there is even a fact, a problem. Um, to me, it seems like it's a very reasonable idea to think that there is some kind of racial contention that exists. And, it, and to deny that, from, from my case, would just be very cavalier. I think, you know, I was talking to some individuals here in your studio, and we were talking about Zimbabwe earlier, and I think it's quite evident there has been racially based violence in Zimbabwe, but what, to what degree and to what level? And for me, I don't know if I have an authority to tell you or anyone here if what the level of that problem is, or if it even is a problem. I'm here to learn and find out. Well, I'm glad you're here today, and I'm glad you started here, because I'm very opinionated on the subject, and I'm not scared to to share my opinion. And unfortunately, it's turned a lot of individuals against me, because I do not believe that there's genocide taking place against our farmers in South Africa, like is claimed by the far right or by fringe groups. Um, I honestly believe that farmers are victims of crime. I believe that they are soft targets. I believe that because they're in rural areas, it is easier to to attack them. I believe that they are, are not just targets 
because of, of the fact that they may have accumulated wealth, but because they also have firearms. They're farmers. They have to hunt vermin on their, on their land. They may have game farms, etc. And firearms are exceptionally um, important and invaluable to criminal syndicates. So I think that makes them more of a target. People have spoken about this genocide against white farmers for quite some time now, and they say it's been happening since 1994, which is 25 years ago. This low-intensity war that's been claimed against our farmers must be the worst genocide in the history of genocide, because if you look at the average of 70 farmers being killed per annum compared to 40 murders in South Africa per day, that doesn't amount to a genocide. Are they a specific target because they're farmers? I don't believe so. But this is something you're going to explore. And I look forward to find, uh, to, 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 to find out more about your findings. And I hope that once it's documented, we'll see whether I was right or wrong in this regard. But one thing I will say is that up until 2006, we had a very effective rural protection force, which was um, a part of the African National Defense Force was known as the Commando Units. And this was disbanded by then President Mbeki. And I think that made the rural farmers more of a target because this invaluable protection force was deprived. It was taken away because it was seen to be perhaps led by far-right elements in South Africa that would like to have gone back to the old days of apartheid. But... That is my two cents worth. You are my guest, and I want to know more about what you plan to do to find out more about the plight of farmers in South Africa and other ethnic minorities. Well, this is interesting because it's like we, sometimes we have to speak in general, generalities, don't we? But when we do that, we're uh, the unfortunate aspect of that is we're leaving out demographics of people, be they big or small, individuals and groups of people who might not actually be a part of that general statement. Um, you know, in the case of, say, Jamaica, when I talk to aristocratic elements of minority groups, be it Jewish or be it Lebanese or British or whatever the derivation might be, if I ask them, do you ever feel marginalized in Jamaican society? Almost always, with few exceptions, they'll be, oh, never, never in any situation I've ever felt mar- marginalized. Or what's it, well, Then I talk to more middle class, working class and very poor, you know, whites or people of similar descent and Almost every situation, they would say they felt very marginalized at points for ethnic or racial reasons. I find it interesting how someone with wealth and some sort of, you know, um, esteem or some kind of uh, status might not feel the exact same way as somebody who doesn't have the exact same amount of income, the exact same same status in life. They can have a very differing experience. And so, you know, just because... I, as an individual, might not experience something in, say, the context of South Africa or the United States doesn't mean it's indicative of all people. So my hope, my goal is to find diverse numbers of people and talk to as many people as I possibly can. Um, I know I'm probably going to get a lot of different answers, which is natural. If we have five different people in a room, we should get some differing answers. And if we don't, well, that should be scary to us because that means people have been probably propagated or robots. Should we all have a monolithic mind view or worldview or shouldn't we see things in a more diverse manner, meaning that I think naturally many different people have many different experiences. And, you know, your experience, I'm sure, is indicative and, and true for many South African people. I'm sure that there's someone on the other end of a spectrum that might have a very differing view from you because they had a differing life and a differing experience. That's at least been my experience as a filmmaker. And when I talk to various groups of people from various different, you know, platforms and area and status and areas of life, I get differing worldviews. 
We're going to take our last break of the show. When we come back, we're going to finish our conversation with Dave Ritz more about what he plans to unfold and what he plans to take back with him. You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. I'm chatting to David Ritzer about ethnic minorities. David, are you here as a reconnaissance to come back and, and film a documentary, or are you ready in the process of putting together something? And what, if you are putting together something, what are you putting together? Well, I'm here for both. I'm here to meet with people. I'm here to see the area, but I'm here to record simultaneously. And it might not be my last. I hope it's not my last trip. I would like to be back here again. And what I'm hoping to find is as many different perspectives as we can find on the subject. And... If anything, could we come to some sort of different, some various solutions and get di- differing perspectives? Um, I'm not under the illusion that making a documentary is going to solve all of South Africa's problems or it's not going to change the entire planet. I just hope that it can do something to give a voice to various uh, philosophies and mindsets and people. And I'm hoping that it can affect people internationally and in this country in a positive way. I hope that, you know, and I'm sure it's kind of, I know it sounds very naive and juvenile because there's people greater than me for many years who've been trying to do just that. And I'm sure varying uh, degrees of success. But I feel like there needs to be more dialogue on the subject. And I feel that a big problem I've seen is that too many people live in these microcosms, these intellectual ghettos and microcosms. And this, this is for the right wing and the left wing, as we were talking about earlier. There's, as you said, there's fringe groups. I feel that we are very controlled by the media that we take in. We Our perspectives are greatly dictated by our media, and that could be right wing media or left wing media. That could be what we get on our internet feed, on Facebook. We are controlled by algorithms at this point. And I think it's very important to punch through that so that we can get genuine opinions from people who live those lives and get diverse opinions on those subjects, if possible. I, I, I really enjoy the conversation we're having, especially surrounding algorithms and what we're being fed by social media. Because depending on, on what you put as your likes, depending on who you like, and depending on what you say, you get fed a certain narrative. And I think a lot of people are misled by these narratives. And I think it's very important for somebody like you as an independent documentary maker to come to South Africa, to experience South Africa for yourself, and to speak to all groups. When it comes to the United States, we all know about doomsday preppers. In South Africa, certain communities, especially in the rural areas, are very similar because they believe that they are the focus of a concerted attack. And you will see that they are armed, they are prepared. But when one goes into the more affluent areas of Johannesburg, of Cape Town, of Durban, one will find something very similar being portrayed by the security forces that protect these individuals, these high net worth guys. You'll see double cab um, SUV vehicles with guys that are armed with long guns and short guns, bulletproof vests. You'll see cameras all over the place. And this to me comes down to the single narrative that crime has a massive role to play in the perception of South Africa and that the perception of crime and who the targets are may have been misinterpreted. What is your next stage in this, in this exploratory process of yours? At this point, I'm going to be just obtaining B-roll footage. I want to accurately and honestly portray places like Johannesburg and South Africa. I want to show the good, the bad, and the ugly, because in any place, there's there's a dichotomy. You know, again, going back to propagation, we have either someone filming nothing but horrible things and trying to give you a perception that everything is terrible and bad, then, you're on the, uh, then you have the someone from the corporatist or some other angle trying to show you a very polished, glossy, glossed-over look, right? And that's for 
two different extremes. I want to try to get something that's very diverse and in a depiction. I want to show all the attributes, the, be- the, the best and the worst I can. But that's so that we can show honesty. And I think in any, this, any society, any nation is like an individual. We all have good as- attributes and aspects. We all have things we can work on or flaws that we can improve. And then, of course, interviews. I, I, I'd love to get more interviews with people like you, have your perspective. And if I can get people with, a, as you said, more of a, would you describe it as a right-wing perspective, you said, or maybe a fringe, or we're talking about the people in the farming communities that want to have their doomsday prepper situation. I would love to talk to them and understand why they have that perspective and idea. Is, is there validity to it? I find that just because I don't experience something doesn't mean there's not validity to that, ex- to that other individual's experience and that mindset. And I want to know what's causing that want to maybe have a prepping culture, a mindset, and uh, those types of environments. David, I'm I'm going to be wanting to interview you when all of this is over. I know you're going to be pressed for time. You're only here for a short number of, of weeks. But when you're back in the States and you've gone through the editing process and you've looked at all the different people you've had conversations with, I want to have another interview with you. I want to have a follow-up, and I want to hear your viewpoint on what you found in South Africa. For our listeners' benefit, how do they find out more about David Ritter? How can they view some of your previous documentaries? Uh, I'm very easy to contact. Um, I'm on Facebook, but uh, if you'd like to see some of my past work, you can find uh, germantownjamaica.com. There's a great link to some of my past work. You can find it, Havresk, Stand on Courage. That's H-A-V-R-E-S-C, Havresk. Stand on Courage was my last film from Iraq, and you can find me on uh, various other platforms on YouTube if you just search my films. I'm very easy to contact. David Ritz, it's been an absolute pleasure. We've been chatting about ethnic minorities. And don't forget, we have an appointment for the next interview once you're back in the States. You have my word.